Hello, this is Esther Preville, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 7th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And now to our first article. One person injured after shooting at North York Bar. Toronto police are looking for a suspect who fled a shooting Sunday, early morning inside a North York Bar. The incident happened near Rilishu Road and Stadacona Driver in the Clanton Park area north of Highway 401 shortly after 1 a.m. Police said that officers were called to reports of an altercation involving a firearm discharge. Upon arrival, police found one person injured with non-life-threatening wounds. The victim has since been transported to a hospital. No further information has been provided on their condition. Police said the suspect had fled the scene before emergency crews arrived. A firearm was recovered from the scene. Santiago Arias Orozco is a breaking news reporter working out of the Star's radar room in Toronto. And on to our next article. When is too much debt too much debt? Household data shows Canadians may already be there. The economic pain associated with rising interest rates is becoming more evident every day and has recently produced bank collapses in both the United States and Switzerland. Growing debt service problems in the developed world should come as no surprise. We are living through an unprecedented change in financial conditions. By the summer of 2020, interest rates had reached all-time lows. Such lows occurred as the developed world debt-to-GDP ratios, the combination of the debt of the government and the private sector, almost certainly reached all-time highs. Given this extreme combination, we should expect the private sector and even the government to struggle to service their debts as interest rates rise. So where in particular might we expect to see such dress and what are the consequences? The debt-to-GDP ratio of the developing world has been rising for almost 40 years. At almost any stage in that rise, there should have been commentators lamenting this rise in debt and warning that it cannot be serviced. A few times in those 40 years, this prophecy almost come true, had almost come true, and this was particularly so during the global financial crisis of 2008. That problems did not develop before 2008, despite the steady rise in debt levels, was due to the steady decline in the rate of interest, something that continued until 2020, with a steady fall in interest rates. Households and corporations could service ever more debt, and thus we had no clear answer to the question, when is too much debt too much debt? Since 2020, however, interest rates have been rising. For those looking for some guidance as to when too much debt is too much debt, the best data to focus on are private sector debt service ratios, or DSRs. These ratios calculated by the Bank for International Settlements, or the BIS, and available on their website, calculate the percentage of total private sector income required to service debt. The most recent data we have for these DSRs shows that Canada is a country particularly exposed to rising interest rates. The slow rise of interest rates from 2020 accelerated in 2022. We now have three quarters of data for 2022, and we can see where rising rates are having the greatest impact on DSRs and debt serviceability. Countries witnessing the same rise in rates will not necessarily see an equal deterioration in their debt service ratios. In countries where the private sector borrows at fixed rates for long terms, then the rise in interest expense will be slower than in countries where debt is taking at floating rates or where short-term borrowing needs need to be rolled over at higher rates. Some countries will likely see much faster growth in nominal incomes than other countries, thus increasing their ability to service debts. There are plenty of moving parts involved in assessing debt serviceability. 
but fortunately these are all encapsulated by the debt service ratios. History suggests that the countries most likely to see a private sector debt service crisis are those where the DSR exceeds 20% and interest rates are rising. By the third quarter of 2022, Canada had a total private sector DSR of 22.4%. Canada's DSR had been higher before, peaking at 24.5% on the eve of the COVID-19 crisis, but then interest rates were declining. In the household sector, Canada has a DSR of 13.5% of household income, third highest among nations tracked by the BIS. And as maturing debt rolls over, interest expenses will continue to rise even if rates stay at current levels. The objective data thus continues to suggest that Canada will have debt service problems in the household sector, unless interest rates decline materially. The US, the country whose household mortgage debt problems brought the world to the brink of a depression in 2008, has a current household DSR of just 7.7%, down from the 11.6% it reached on the eve of the great residential property crash. Perhaps Americans learned their lesson in 2008, something Canadian households have yet to learn. Unfortunately, the DSRs for the Canadian non-financial corporate sector also look dangerously high. Corporates usually run with much higher levels of debt relative to their income than households. Canadian corporations have the third highest DSR, 47.8% among countries for which the BIS compiles statistics. By comparison, the US corporate sector often considered to be dangerously over-leveraged after an era of financial engineering, has a DSR of 40.1%. Those concerned about too much debt in the U.S. corporate sector should be more concerned about the levels of debt in the Canadian corporate sector. So, does the excessive leverage in the Canadian private sector mean that we face a financial collapse, similar to that which impacted the U.S. in 2008? The DSR of both Canada's household sector and its non-financial corporate sector are now higher than the similar debt service levels for the U.S. in December 2007. What came next for the U.S.? Through 2008 was a crisis, but also rapidly falling interest rates. Perhaps what this private sector DSR data is telling us is that the interest rates in Canada cannot remain this high. While central bankers are charged with delivering low inflation, they will not pursue their target across a battlefield littered with dead and injured financial institutions. Financial stability is a goal, even more important to central bankers than price stability. Actions by central bankers since the collapse of the Lehman Brothers in 2008 showed the extremes they would go to avoid the collapse of the financial system that would turn the recession into a depression. Even more importantly, governments recently in both Switzerland and the U.S. have used their balance sheets to prevent a rerun of the Lemons crisis. The high levels of private sector DSRs in Canada are likely to lead to a growing debt crisis. The most likely reaction to this is a move by the Bank of Canada to reduce interest rates and action by the government of Canada to stabilize the financial system. These actions, likely also necessary to a lesser degree in other developed world countries, result in a change in the nature of the economy with much greater government involvement in the financial system. They also likely result in inflation being well above the levels to which investors and citizens have become accustomed over the past few decades. That Canada has disease in the form of too much debt is evident from the data. It may be the dose of the medicine necessary to cure that disease that is ultimately more important for investors struggling to protect the purchasing power of their savings. It is a world where bonds will not defend investors from the ravages of inflation. Some equities can do so and gold will. 
Russell Napier is an advisor on asset allocation to institutional investors. He's a freelance contributing columnist for The Star. And on to our next article. King Charles is fine, but how would the $20 look with these Canadians on it? Ottawa. King Charles will replace the Queen on Canada's $20 bill and the country's coins. The federal government announced the change Saturday during coronation events in the nation's capital. A news release from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that the Bank of Canada has been directed to replace the likeness of the late Queen Elizabeth II with King Charles III during the next design process. It has also asked the Royal Canadian Mint with designing coins depicting the new monarch that will go into circulation. The rating monarch has appeared on paper money and coins since the central bank and the mint each began production in 1935 and 1908 respectively. The announcement comes after speculation on whether Canada should follow the UK's lead and honour the new monarch on its currency. In addition, Australia chose in to go in another direction opting for an Indigenous design for its $5 bill. Canada Post also released its first regular circulation stamp featuring King Charles as a monarch. It continues the corporation's tradition, dating back to more than 170 years of issuing stamps depicting the Canadian sovereign. The finance minister is responsible for approving the form and material of any new banknote, including the portrait subject in accordance with the Bank of Canada Act. Having the monarch on currency is a practice that goes back to centuries when coins were minted with the king's face on it in the Middle Ages, according to experts, and it signifies power and tradition. This was a way of showing that all money in the kingdom was owned by the king, and also a way of preventing fraud, said Justin Volk, a royal historian and a PhD candidate in early modern history at Master University. No one, including the monarchy, sees currency as belonging to the king anymore, but it is a symbolic reflection of the sovereign's relationship with Canada, according to Volk. He is not only king of the United Kingdom, but he is also king of Canada. Yet, a recent poll from the Angus Reid Institute finds that more than half of Canadians do not want their country to continue as a constitutional monarchy for generations to come. Almost 90% of those surveyed are willing to embrace constitutional change to sever the country's rural roots, and more than 40% say that they don't care about the coronation. The online April poll surveyed 2,000 adults. For comparison purpose, a sample of that size would have a margin of error of plus or minus 2 percentage points 19 times out of 20. There is a strong sense of indifference in Canada towards the monarchy, said Bovk, explaining that people are questioning the institution's relevance to their modern lives. The question I'm hearing from most people on this particular topic is why even put him on the money? I suspect there will be many people who would be less than thrilled to have Charles on Canadian money. It would make sense for Canada to follow Australia's example, according to Bovk, and use its physical money as a way to honour homegrown Canadian history. There is less a slight against the monarchy than is to acknowledge the uniqueness that is Canada and its people, agreed Vovk. I don't think having King Charles's image on currency would move the younger generation, said Diane Peckham, a sociologist and professor emeritus at the University of Ottawa. They do not even know who he is. He does not have the strong presence his mother had. He is generally not well liked. She added, adding his tumultuous marriage to Diana, Princess of Wales, has played a role in his unlikability, as well as Queen Elizabeth II's long reign overshadowing Charles. 
Only 30% of Canadians say they view the 74-year-old king favorably, according to a recent poll by Ipsos. On top of that, according to Paycom, the world is a different place now, where money as a tangible material is losing its value and meaning. Everything is moving towards virtual reality now. People use credit cards, digital currency, so it would be a nostalgic thing for people who grew up in a time when money was tangible. Maybe it will be valuable to collectors. Younger people don't have the emotional, physical connection to money. In the UK, currency featuring Charles III's effigy has been introduced last fall and will begin circulating in mid-2024. In Canada, although the national currency has not changed, two different Canadian medallion designs have been officially approved for the coronation and are available to collectors in both silver and bronze. Some of the candidates. Who are some Canadians who could have adorned the new $20 bill as an alternative to King Charles III? Here are some potential candidates as selected by the star editors. Some more obvious candidates and a chart-topping long shot. Lincoln Alexander, 1922-2012. He was a veteran and he was a lawyer. He was the first black Canadian to become an MP. He became Minister of Labour. He served as chair of the Workers' Compensation Board of Ontario and he served as Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. Cindy Blacksock, 59. She's a member of the Kitsklan First Nation who has fought for child protection and Indigenous rights. She has made significant contributions to the UN's work on Indigenous people. She has helped win major court rulings in support of the rights of Indigenous children. Tom Longboat, 1886-1949. He was an Olympian and one of the most successful athletes of the early 20th century. He was an Onondaga from Six Nations of the Grand River. He broke marathon records and pioneered training methods, and Longboat served on the Western Front in the First World War. David Suzuki, 87. He is a geneticist and one of Canada's most prominent crusaders for the environment. He is best known for hosting the television show The Nature of Things. He is also widely written on environmental issues. During the Second World War, a young Suzuki was interned for his family with his family in BC. Celine Dion, 55. Or we could go in a different direction, a celebrity. Dion is a world-renowned singer with an exceptional voice that has brought her international fame. She has won five Grammy Awards and is an officer of the Order of Canada. And Titanic wouldn't have been the same without her, with files from the Canadian prince. Iram Coca is an Ottawa-based general site reporter for the Star. And on to our next article. Here's how Canada can mobilize to solve our national housing crisis. Now more than ever, Canadians are facing unprecedented challenges finding affordable housing that meets their needs. According to the most recent data available from October 2022, rental housing vacancy rates in Canada were 1.9%, compared to 3.1% a year ago, leading to a 5.4% increase in rent inflation from 2021 to 2022. Conditions in home ownership markets aren't any better. While house prices fell 15.4% on average over the last year, sharp increases in mortgage rates offset most affordability gains for homeowners, especially for first-time home buyers. If this continues, housing challenges in Canada would deteriorate further, leading to increased social inequities and broader socioeconomic issues that are much more difficult to tackle. We can act now and seize this unique opportunity to improve Canada's housing market. But to be successful, key stakeholders need to come together as a unified group and commit to concrete actions. History suggests it can be done. 
the COVID-19 pandemic was a catalyst for growing the digital economy. With millions of Canadians working remotely from home, now many employers are recruiting countrywide, advertising jobs located anywhere in Canada. Canadians embraced the opportunity to embrace their working conditions and reduce the relative cost of living by moving to traditionally less expensive communities outside of larger urban centers. But this made the housing challenge, previously mostly a large urban center phenomenon, a countrywide issue. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Governments alone can't fix housing challenges. At the same time, population growth, fostered in part by much-needed increases to our immigration targets, made housing demand skyrocket, triggering sharp price increases for both rentals and for home ownership. To restore housing affordability to levels recorded in the early 2000s, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation estimates that the pace of housing construction needs to accelerate by 3.5 million units between now and 2030. This represents roughly double the annual number of housing starts over the 2022 to 2030 period and likely trillions of dollars in investments. But the challenge goes above and beyond housing itself. Significant investments also need to be made to surround this new housing with necessary infrastructure, sewers, roads, resilient electricity grids, public transit, internet access, and schools to name a few. The reality is that no government alone will be able to fix the situation. The federal government's national housing strategy is merely a down payment on what's needed to start improving housing accessibility and affordability, even if they were perfectly coordinated federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal governments would benefit from additional support, alignment, and coordination with other stakeholders to address our national housing challenge. We need a broad mobilization of all local, regional, and national driving forces to move the needle on housing. We must bring all of them, industry, developers, mortgage issuers, housing managers, builders, civil society, associations, not-for-profit housing providers, people with lived experiences of unaffordable housing, and governments, federal, provincial, territorial, municipal, and indigenous, together to participate in a Canadian estate's general on housing. A generational opportunity to make Canada better. The NSH General was how the King of France brought together the whole society, then composed of the clergy, nobility, and commoners to advise them on key national and fiscal issues. More recently, in 1966, the Estate General of French Canada was a series of conferences that brought together thousands of stakeholders from Quebec, Acadia, and Ontario to help define the country's future. In 1995, the government of Quebec convened an Estate General on Education, where a public commission conducted consultations with stakeholders from across civil society to reflect on and suggest ways to modernize and improve Quebec's educational system. Both marketing turning points in history and an Estate General on Housing can do the same for our housing challenge. A process of local, regional, and provincial mobilization and consultation would culminate in a week-long national summit where every participant would agree to contribute concrete solutions to the housing crisis and commit to measurable and reportable actions over the short, medium, and long term. Each housing stakeholder would also commit to quarterly reporting on their progress to improve the state of housing in the country. Ideally, the convener of this estate general on housing would be an organization where interests are diffused enough to avoid any one stakeholder from having a concentration of power. When it comes to housing, the challenges are enormous, but the stakes are even higher. 
If Canadian housing stakeholders can unite, we'll have a generational opportunity to make our communities and our country better, ensuring a society where every Canadian can achieve their full potential, starting with finding a home. This will require compromise and candid discussions, but it could eventually make Canada stronger by improving living standards. Matthew Laberge is a partner and leader of economics and policy at KPMG in Canada. He is also a former chief economist at CMHC and advised on the development of the national housing strategy. And on to our next article. David Olive, GM is killing the Chevy Bolt too bad because bloated electric SUVs are not what humanity needs. April 25th marked a milestone of sorts, and not a good one. General Motors Co. made it official that day that it will stop producing its flagship electric vehicle, EV, the Chevrolet Bolt, a compact SUV by the end of the year. Killing the popular entry-level Bolt is part of GM's shift to more profitable big trucks and large SUVs. In today's vehicle market, new model cars are big, existing models have gained weight, and popular small cars like the Chevy Cruze and Ford Motor Co.'s Focus and Fiesta have been discontinued. Car sizes have evolved so much in the past 12 years to be so much bigger. Analyst Jessica Caldwell of the auto price comparison website Edmunds told USA Today, Can we really go back to a life when we were driving subcompact cars? I don't think so. It just doesn't seem to match the psyche anymore. But replacing bloated, gas-powered vehicles with road-hogging EVs turns the logic of EVs upside down. Big EVs consume as much steel as their oversized, gas-powered counterparts. And steelmaking is a leading source of greenhouse gas emissions. Automakers are also boosting their profits by packing their vehicles with expensive digital features like infotainment systems that consume scarce critical minerals needed elsewhere in a decarbonizing economy. And big EVs tend to be heavier than their gas-powered cousins due to their massive batteries, which can equal the weight of a small car. Ford's F-150 Lightning EV pickup truck, for instance, is about one-third heavier than its gas-powered stablemate. That additional weight causes a more severe impact in a crash. And the extra height of oversized vehicles can make it more difficult to see a person in front of a vehicle, crossing an intersection, for instance. In his sobering 2021 report on auto safety risks, researcher Dustin Tyndall of the University of Hawaii concluded that between 2000 and 2019, I estimate that replacing the growth in sport utility vehicles with cars would have averted 1,100 U.S. pedestrian deaths. That shift to bigger vehicles, EVs and otherwise, plays out on City of Toronto streets. In the past decade of higher public awareness about needed road safety precautions, road fatalities still claimed the lives of 346 pedestrians and 28 cyclists, and 1,272 pedestrians suffered severe injury in that period. We may have erred in deferring so much to automakers to shape the EV revolution. The EV transition offers a huge financial upside to the 3 trillion US global auto sector. Its choice of EV offerings to replace the global vehicle fleet might not be what a threatened humanity needs. There was no such profit motive for another option fighting global warming in the transportation sector, now gaining momentum after a long preoccupation with EVs. It consists of active modes of transportation, namely walking and cycling and of micromobility, an umbrella term for walking, e-bikes, conventional bicycles, kick scooters, and e-mopeds, and increased use of better-funded public transit and car-based ride-sharing. 
the 15-minute city described here earlier, where almost everything one needs from shopping to recreation is within a 15-minute walk from home, runs on micromobility. So does the increasingly entrenched phenomenon of work from home. With its elimination of lengthy personal vehicle commutes, governments and environmental groups have gone all in on EVs, only recently beginning to show interest in people-powered transportation. Those now advocating for less driving, or none at all, have sought evidence for micromobility as a necessary additional means of fighting climate change. In 2020, a little-noticed report by the OECD found that EVs alone will have less impact on climate change than widely believed. And that same year, engineering researchers at the University of Toronto published a report reaching the same conclusion. The UFT researchers used computer modeling of the US com used computer modeling of the US market to show that America would need to get to 90% EV adoption by 2050 to meet its emission reduction targets. And they concluded that in the best case scenario, only 50% of the US vehicle fleet will be EVs by that point. A lot of people think that a large-scale shift to EVs will mostly solve our climate problems in the passenger vehicle sector, said Alexander Milovanov, lead author of the UFT report. EVs are necessary, but on their own, they are not sufficient. Among the alternatives in fighting climate change and transportation are the many municipal efforts to create car-free oases in financial and tourist districts. These projects are underway from Edmonton to Manhattan and a more precise method for dealing with oversized EVs and traditional vehicles alike would be surcharges on license renewals for vehicles of excessive weight. A similar adjustment would be useful in federal and provincial rebates for EV buyers, and redesigned Ontario green license plates are in order. Not all vehicles today bearing those plates are making much of a difference in the climate change fight. David Olive is a Toronto-based business columnist for The Star. And on to our next article. Heather Schofield, believe it or not, Canada's population will hit 40 million in June. It's time we learned how to retain newcomers. Canada's population is about to break the 40 million mark this June. Chief Statistician Anil Arora took to the stage last week to illustrate Canada's surging society, and that number was his starting point for a very good reason. Canada's population is growing quite quickly by historical standards and compared to the rest of the world. And almost all of that growth is thanks to immigration. At the same time, it's important to note that in any given year, there are thousands of Canadians who leave the country, even permanently or temporarily. You can actually see it happening in real time, thanks to a population clock built by Statistics Canada, which shows a couple thousand people per day coming into Canada, and mainly as immigrants or non-permanent residents. And what's true for the company, is that even more so for the GTA, the center of the country's vibrant and dynamic diversity. These implications are far-reaching and profound, as Aurora pointed out in the prestigious annual Mannion Lecture to Public Servants, especially for the economy. To make the obvious point, it's essential that policymakers and employees alike anticipate the change coming at us and make the most of it. That's not lost in any employer desperately trying to fill job hostings these days, nor is it lost in our political leaders. 
Immigration Minister Sean Fraser and his entourage are traveling the country, looking for bold ideas for the long term, practical ideas for the short term, and tight timelines to deliver a new vision to his colleagues in cabinet. At stake is our standard of living, our ability to compete with other countries, our regional development, and importantly, our ability to get along with one another. Here are a few more numbers to add to Aurora's headline. Last year, permanent residents coming into Canada reached a historic high, and the same goes for temporary workers. In other words, Canada has a healthy flow of people moving here for the long term, along with a more haphazard intake of stopgap workers whose future is uncertain. Employers are scrambling to fill more than 731,000 positions right now. But this is down from the 1 million job vacancies that dominated the news last fall. The vacancies reflect an underlying labor shortage in Canada as the population ages and retirements pile up. But layered on top of that is an expected shorter-term slowdown in hiring as the country's employers grapple with the rising interest rates and stagflation. House prices in the GTA were up 4% in April, but down 7.8% from a year ago. Similarly, the volume of sales was up 9% on the month, but down 5.2% compared to a year ago. In other words, Toronto homes are really expensive and the market is very much in flux. It's a confusing array of short-term mismatches and long-term demographic trends that require a nuanced approach if the company's economy is to set itself on a growth trajectory. There's no doubt that we need a growing labor force over the long term and that immigration is just a source of that growth. There is no doubt that business leaders routinely list labor supply as their top challenge, and they're constantly reassessing the mix of skills that they need. There's no doubt that the challenge of expensive housing repeatedly throws a wrench in the best laid plans. And there's no doubt that Canada's reputation as a magnet for the world's best and brightest is under pressure, because other countries are mirroring our approach and taking us on. Canada has fallen behind on key issues that impact our reputation, including administrative backlogs, inadequate housing, and poor recognition of foreign credentials. In the 2022 Global Talent Competitiveness Index, Canada fell to 15th place, down from 9th place in 2015, with its lowest scores for immigrant retention. Hopefully, the federal government separates out the acute short-term dynamics from the chronic longer-term pressures and is actively talking to businesses about how to collaborate and make sure that the mix of newcomers adds to our ability to build homes, fill job vacancies, and set the stage for longer-term productivity. There is talk of fast-tracking the flow of newcomers attached to trusted employees and trusted institutions, such as universities. There is creative thinking around how large-scale employers can work together to recruit pools of volunteers overseas. The discussion with professional organizations to streamline credential recognition is vigorous, and there's some promising use of technology to speed up approvals in a way that also helps with matching people with jobs and smooths out integration. And of course, on top of the push for speed and the right mix of workers, Candace immigration policy is also about a humanitarian approach to refugees and family reunification, as always. We're in the midst of a promising collective brainstorm around how a brainstorming that will become more complicated in the next months as government drives toward decisions and as the economy slows down. Luckily, most of the public, the government, and business are on the same wavelength in making immigration work well for the economy and the country as a whole. 
Let's keep that consensus in mind as policymakers and employers figure out how. Heather Schofield is Senior Vice President Strategy at the Business Council of Canada. She was formerly the Ottawa Bureau Chief and Economist Colonist at the Toronto Star. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our next article. Edward Keenan, The Obsession and Its Untold Costs of Trying to Find Housing in Toronto. We have a crisis of housing affordability in this city. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We're obsessed with it. Items at City Council this month on declaring homelessness an emergency and permitting new housing types to be built more easily are trying to tackle parts fit. Multiple mayoral candidates, Mark Saunders, and Bailao, Anthony Peruza, Mitzi Hunter, either released housing plans this week or are planning to do so next, and others, Olivia Chow, Joss Matlow, Brad Bradford, already have at least parts of theirs out. Everyone knows we have a problem. Most of us feel it. Some of us are forced to move out of long-time rental homes and enter a rental market where even an average one-bedroom apartment goes for $2,500 per month while the median monthly individual income in Toronto is just 3266 Some of us are dreaming of home ownership in a city where, if you manage to have a 10% down payment saved up, an average house will require a million-dollar mortgage, while the median family income will only qualify you for a $484,000 mortgage. Some of us are not as lucky as that, and scrambling to find shelter space in a city where emergency shelters are reported to be unsafe and overflowing. The cost of this to many of us is palpable. The tolls of homeless encampments on the health and safety of those who live in them and those whose neighborhoods they set up in, for instance. The strangling squeeze on family budgets. Many of us stress over around our dinner tables, figuring out which youth sports programs we can't afford this season or which groceries we can no longer buy. The trickle-down effects on industries like restaurants and the arts and entertainment when people cannot afford anything in their life beyond the basics. The massive debts a student must now take on to live here while studying at the University in Toronto. The desperate obsession that comes to rule many of our lives, where all of our mental energy is consumed by trying to figure out how to afford a place to live big enough for our family's needs. A friend of mine recently put a name on his on this in a Facebook post that got me thinking about it again. She said she'd spent so long suffering from housing cost-inspired Toronto tunnel vision that it was all-consuming. And her story points to another big cost of this problem, to Toronto, that it becomes invisible to us. We don't see it, because people like her and her family leave. She moved to Montreal 18 months ago. She misses Toronto, and real estate isn't exactly cheap in her new town, but it's more affordable than here, and they have a childcare system that makes life easier. She and her partner both have master's degrees, and she had a decent job here, yet she says she couldn't even afford an apartment in a city that would meet the fire code. I loved my friends and my neighborhood, but the struggle to make ends meet was all-consuming, to the point where I couldn't think of what I wanted even one or two years down the line, apart from better housing for my kid, she wrote. She would give permission for me to write her and her online post, but asked not to be named directly because her employer would frown upon it. I knew her when she was here as one of those people I associate with this place, like a Toronto booster, active in the arts community and in political causes, 
the kind of person who contributes to the city's culture and who you don't expect to go somewhere else. But I've seen a lot of that precise type of people leaving in the last few years, a trend that picked up as the pandemic changed working conditions and at the same time, it spiked housing prices. The number of Toronto people I know, lower middle class, younger middle aged, who have moved to Hamilton or Montreal or the East Coast over the past few years is astonishing to me. I'm talking anecdotally about my friends, but a statistical phenomenon. I've noted before that last year, the province of Ontario saw the largest out-migration of residents to other provinces in recorded history, seeing more than 140,000 residents leave for other places in one year, while only 80,000 came here from other provinces. Immigration keeps the population growing, but we're losing the people who have called this place home. I wonder what the bigger cost of that is in the long term. Richard Florida, now a professor at UFT, became famous for a creative class theory of how city economies developed that initially drew attention with a bohemian index, creative types. The idea being that artists and creative types help give a city a culture that made successful companies want to move there, which then boosted the local economy. What happens when these bohemians can no longer afford to live in a city contributing to its culture, or when lots of well-educated people with decent jobs of the type that have traditionally guaranteed stability can't afford a home for their family, or when young, talented people just establishing themselves cannot afford a first apartment to move into. As my friend who's now in Montreal was careful to note to me, those like her with the employment options and resources to move aren't away among the most fortunate. There are many others who just can't find a job in some other place or afford to leave behind what circle of social and family supports they have, or even pay the bare cost of moving their stuff to another city. They suffer the worst costs, stuck with Toronto Tunnel Vision, or worse, dominating their lives. The toll goes up and down on the income spectrum and ripples across the whole culture and economy of the city. In Toronto, we're still just learning of what those costs will be, those we can see on the streets, and those that create an absence that is harder to measure. Edward Keenan is a Toronto-based city columnist for the Star. And on to our next article. Charles assumes the throne after a lifetime of preparation. On a damp and chilly English morning, after most of a natural lifespan spent preparing and waiting, Charles III was at last, formally vested Saturday in a role that he was born for. The challenges Charles faces after the first coronation of a British monarch in 70 years are daunting. The institution must contend with a gathering existential crisis. Its subjects expressing disdain for the sins of the empire, or perhaps more lethally, indifference to it all. The Commonwealth is restless. The realms demanding apologies, reparations, or a new model of monarchy. With brother Prince Andrew disgraced and son Prince Harry estranged, the House of Windsor itself is unsettled and congenitally given to self-inflicted wounds. To address it all, the new king at 74 with King Camilla has a window of limited duration. It might have been Prince William who, on his 21st birthday, put his finger on the task of facing his father. It's important that people feel the monarchy can keep up with them and what is relevant to their lives, William said, a challenge that endures and grows. 
1953, on the coronation of Charles's mother, Queen Elizabeth II, who died in September, Canada's then-Governor General Vincent Massey, enthused that our truly venerated monarchy of Britain has renewed itself in the person of our young sovereign. Today there exists a much less venerated monarchy. Today there is little real sense of renewal. As recent polling suggests, increasing numbers of Canadians are disenchanted with the monarchy. Only 3 in 10 looked favorably on Charles, half wanted to shed the monarchy entirely. That's not likely to happen soon. The necessary constitutional maneuverings are complex, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he doesn't intend to go there. And why should he? Canadians are well served by Canada's constitutional monarchy. Still, experts suggest that the King's relationship with Canada will be important. In her biography of Charles, Catherine Mayer noted that in devising a new, rec a new model of monarchy for the realms, the then prince hopes to defeat the new model armies of republicanism. Canada with small but committed forces on either side and larger phalanxes of don't knows and couldn't cares makes a good testing ground. Arriving on the throne in his eighth decade, Charles is hamstrung by limitations not of his making. He can never surpass his mother in the signature traits of maturity and resolve. And it is his son William, who many would have preferred to see take the throne as an agent of renewal. Yet there are those who suggest Charles is underestimated and wouldn't be the first leader to benefit from low expectations. For half a century, he has been forward-looking and early advocate for the environment, conservation, organic farming, Equality of opportunity for youth, for interfaith and intercultural understanding. But once what once was dismissed now looks prescient. Charles has compensated for a want of gifts with hard work. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair called him enormously and sincerely committed to the causes that animate him. David Cameron, another past Prime Minister, said that the King is an expert in many policy fields. He has detailed knowledge, reads deeply, and consults with authorities from all over the world. Like all mortals, Charles has been tempered by pain and loss, a scarring childhood, divorce from the death of, and the death of Princess Diana, estranged from his son. Through it all, he has carried on. In the last 20 years, married to his great love Camilla, he has seemed increasingly comfortable in his role and in his own skin. He has had more time to plan his reign than any predecessor, and if the monarchy seems out of touch with the time, his ideas and willingness to reckon with the past and modernize do not. With pageantry and ancient traditions of the coronation on Saturday, his movement, his crucible, a moment he once described as the most ghastly, inexorable sense of his future arrived. May the king shoulder this role, the burden of history and the weight of expectations with wisdom and grace. And on to our next article, the cowardly retreat of Republican moderates afraid to take on Trump. Despite sinking into further disrepute since his departure from the White House, remarkably, or perhaps unremarkably, Donald Trump has firmly established his position as a frontrunner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. At the first glance, it is easy to attribute Trump's success simply to the increased radicalization and division apparent in the land of liberty. But I see it differently. For me, the cowardly retreat of Republican moderates has not received sufficient blame for the marginalization of American conservatism. Their opposition to Trump, despite increased opportunity for it to be effective, has been both pitiful and pathetic. After the underwhelming Republican performance in the 2022 midterms, for which Trump was resoundingly culpable, 
one would have hoped to see the emergence of a nominee with the potential to restore respectability to the GOP's leadership. After all, the chance was staring them in the face. Yet no viable, yet no viable moderate competitor has emerged. While some would argue that the party is so lost that at this point the situation is hopeless, how do we know that to be true if no one has tried? As a result, the Trump virus has continued to fester and spread. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, considered the most likely contender to take on Trump, is just Trump without the amusement. He's just as determined to push dogmatic agendas, be it on guns, LGBT rights, or abortion. He is just less funny, quite a bit. Trump's presidency was characterized by the binary choice he created. You were either with him or against him. This polarizing force instilled fear in those who dared to defy him. However, in the current nomination context, there's no excuse for moderate Republicans to cower. Gone should be their fear of alienating Trump's voting base because that base has left them. After all, it is a base that despises them as much as they despise that base. Instead, they should be jumping at the chance to confront him. But this cowardice is baked in, starting at the top. Party leaders like Mitch McConnell and Kelvin McCarthy have often been reluctant to criticize Trump, fear and jeopardy to their political careers. Ronald McDaniel's election as chair of the Republican National Committee is another signal. She is widely seen as having been picked because she is best positioned to prevent Trump from forming a splinter movement, should he lose the nomination. Their support sends a message to rank-and-file Republicans that dissent from Trumpism is not welcome. So if the GOP is truly lost to the MAGA movement, why haven't we seen more defections to the Democrats or an appetite for an alternative movement? The Lincoln Project is a political action committee formed by moderate Republicans. It is the closest thing, but its efforts alone aren't enough. Asa Hutchinson, former two-term Arkansas governor, is running as a non-Trump candidate, vowing to champion common sense, consistent conservatism, while commendable Hutchinson is polling with less than 1% support and unable to build any momentum, largely thanks to the absence of figures like Mitt Romney, which highlights the apathy and fear that has become pervasive among moderate Republicans. One must wonder what happened to the conviction and performance of these moderates. In the face of Trump's antics, where is Jeb Bush, who was last reported to be attempting to buy and sell Israeli spyware through his private equity firm? And even if they are quiet now, at least Bush and Romney previously tried to take Trump on. Where are the many others who never even bothered? They carry far more of the blame. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Spineless refusals to confront Trump are directly responsible for his continued popularity. History will not judge well those moderates who abandoned a difficult fight because they thought it was a hopeless fight. Those who flew the white flag and surrendered their party to the mega privates will be seen for what they are, cowards. James Watt is the executive chairman of Navigator Limited and a conservative strategist. He is a freelance contributing columnist for the Star. And on to our next article. Michael Chong reveals why his story should concern Canadians. Ottawa, a friend, a man of honor, a man who embodies all that is best about the House of Commons. That's just that's how not just party colleagues, but even partisan rivals, described Conservative MP Michael Chong this week as shock rippled through Parliament with revelations he and his family were targets for Chinese state interference in 2021. But when Chong himself first heard the news via a Globe and Mail report last Monday, shock wasn't what hit him. 
In interview with the Toronto Star, the 51-year-old father of three said that his first response was profound disappointment. Disappointment the government knew but didn't tell him a Toronto-based Chinese diplomat was trying to gather information on his family to use for intimidation purposes in response to Chong's support for Uyghur minority rights. Disappointment that when the 2021 intelligence assessment was compiled, portions of it which he finally saw this week, no action was taken against diplomat. This disappointment stems in part from a theme, running through Chong's nearly 19 years as the MP for Wellington Halting Hills, a profound belief in and commitment to the need to protect and safeguard the institutions of democracy. He's an architect of a piece of legislation that gives MPs the right to remove their leader. He was for the first time in 2022 to dethrone his former boss, Aaron O'Toole. He's among the few in modern-day Canadian political life who have resigned a position of power on a point of principle. In, 20, in 2006, he quit his job as Intergovernmental Affairs Minister over a motion recognizing the Quebecois as a nation inside United Canada. He said it implied the recognition of ethnicity, and I cannot support that. I do not believe in ethnic nationalism. I believe in a civic nationalism. In 2017, he ran for leadership of the Conservative Party because of what he perceived as a civic duty to give back to a country that had given his family everything. Canadian soldiers fought for both his parents' families' freedoms during the Second World War. So where his disappointment over the revelations this week shifts to concern, it is on this point. To him, Canada's democratic institutions are under attack, and his view of the government is indifferent. He points to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and has told allies, Canada simply won't meet the 2% spending target on defense. He points to a recent story about a case against a scientist accused of taking illegal payments from China falling apart because it took too long to get to trial. And he also points to the fact the dozier with intelligence about him was in fact circulated around government agencies. Though I Trudeau and his ministers say it was never presented to them. Trump said that the piece of information came to him via Trudeau's national security advisor, Jody Thomas, who called him after she had made him a promise to find out what happened to the information gathered on him in 2021. But even as that revelation raises question about why no senior government officials fit to brief the political level, Chong said it is not them he is angry at. To him, the blame lies squarely at the feet of the Prime Minister. It reflects the Prime Minister as a Prime Minister who does not see national security as serious and needing attention. He points to all this because of another point he wants to make. I just one case of the foreign interference activities taking place in Canada, he said. What I think about is all the people whose stories never get told. Chong's story begins with a choice his father, Paul, made in 1952 to leave Hong Kong and head for the University of Manitoba. Paul Chong eventually made his way east and through medical school, becoming an internist. He married Cornelia Dehan, who'd left the Netherlands in the 1960s and had four children with Michael the oldest. They kept in touch with extended families still in Hong Kong when Chong rose in the House of Commons to reflect on the death of Queen Elizabeth II. He called her the most important person he'd ever met. He talked about exchanging letters with his cousins there. Both had stamps with the Queen and it struck him as a point of connection. Those stamps made him realize that as a young boy, that what bound us together between Canada and Hong Kong was not just family ties, but also institutions based on freedoms, liberties, and the rule of law, he said in a September 15, 2022 speech. 
he was worried that by virtue of being related to a Canadian, and especially a Canadian politician, his family could be targets of Chinese retaliation, and he wanted to protect them. He still does. He didn't want to divulge any details to the star about his family in Hong Kong, but he hopes his story serves as a wake-up call. I keep thinking about all the people who suffer in silence, he said. My hope is the high-profile stature of the PRC targeting MPs results in a more serious approach to countering foreign interference to protect all Canadians. Stefan Levitz is an Ottawa-based reporter covering federal politics for the Star. And on to our next article. David Poulin, the Leafs need more from Mitch Marner. Time is running out. The Maple Leafs are in trouble. Down 2-0 to zero to the upstart Florida Panthers in the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs and with both losses on home ice, they have dug a hole for themselves. They have to win for the next five games as they head south. History tells us they have a 13% chance. But the Leafs' best is good enough to accomplish the feat. They are so capable and that's the maddening part. At their best, they are brilliant. At their worst, they are frighteningly inconsistent. A win in Sunday's Game 3 totally spin the narrative. And if it happens, there's a good chance that Mitch Marner will be at the center of it. They need that. He's that important. In many ways, Game 2 was a microcosm of their season. Maybe the last few. A terrific start saw the home team up by a pair of goals on the strength of an unlikely fourth-line tally by Alex Kerfoot and a crisp power play featuring a brilliant Marner pass to a little to Ryan O'Reilly. A little over five minutes in, life was good for Leafs fans. The power play goal was of particular importance. After going 0-4 for four with the man advantage in Game 1, in many ways, the power play is the centerpiece of their identity, always operating near the top of the league. In this instance, the unit featured north of 48.5 million in firepower. All that talent and an extra man on the ice borders is unfair. That was the Leaves at their best. Featuring the core of the group that has been both extolled and harpooned in recent years, O'Reilly replaced the off-maligned William Nylander, the frame, but the framework was the same. In a flurry of chances that led to the goal, Marner was a whirling dervish, passing, spinning, shooting, retrieving the puck before delivering a perfect feed through a maze of sticks into O'Reilly's tape. The Leafs seemed to be on their way. The Panthers had other ideas and cut the Leafs' lead to 2-1 to one by capitalizing on a defensive zone turnover created by their aggressive forecheck. The home team still seemed to be in control after one period, but whatever occurred in the locker room during the 18-minute intermission speaks to the inconsistency this team has become known for at the most critical times. The Leafs' core, including Marner, was at the center of a catastrophic start to the second period that would cost them the game. It's hard to explain how a team can be so different from one period to the next. It happens through the NHL, but shouldn't happen as often to the better teams. The Leafs' good is so good that when they're not, it screams at you. An egregious turnover by Nylander led to the tying goal by Florida captain Sasha Barkov, just 19 seconds into the period. A weak shot that netminder Ilya Samsonov should have handled. Leafs coach Sheldon Keefe, answered with his top line featuring Marner and Austin Matthews looking for immediate pushback. Instead, just inside the Leafs' blue line with the surly Sam Bennett closing in quickly, Marner uncharacteristically rushed a backhand pass to Matthews, who was handcuffed and turned the puck over. At critical moments, you need your best players to be at their best. Sometimes that means making the simple play. Matthew and Marner's didn't. 
and the Panthers took a 3-2 lead just 66 seconds into the second. In today's NHL, the margins are razor thin. When you're down to eight teams competing for the ultimate prize, even more so. Much has made the burden of first-round failures hindering the Leafs. It was expected that once the burden was lifted, more success would follow. But what if the pressure is even greater in the second round? Maybe it isn't, but it would make sense. One step closer to the Holy Grail. There is certainly time for the Leafs to reverse the script. Their best is that good, and individual excellence can change a narrative in a hurry. But they have been held to two goals in each of the last four games, and Marner, while piling up some assists, hasn't scored in six. They need their core players to excel at what they do best. They may need Marner the most. He's that important. David Poulin, a former NHL player and executive, is a TSN hockey analyst based in Toronto and a freelance contributing columnist for The Star. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features for the May 7th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.